Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for today's episode with the one and only Charles Eisenstein. Charles is a prolific thinker and writer. He has uh, penned uh, some incredible books, Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, Climate, A New Story, and his upcoming book, The Coronation. His work has been shared far and wide. I find him to be incredibly compelling, especially in the diversity of subjects that he covers with, with such thoughtfulness, and it really provokes tremendous inquiry. We covered some incredible ground in this show. We ventured into our unique song, um, how to sort of sing with resonance, if you will. We speak to the moment that we find ourselves in and what this pandemic evoked in the collective. And we speak about the new and ancient story that is a, a consistent theme through Charles's work. I think you will find a tremendous amount of value in the show. And I was uh, honored that Charles agreed to, uh, to come on. Before we jump into it, I just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Feel Free is an incredible product. I basically got off of alcohol because I did a cost-benefit analysis and realized the cost was far more significant than the benefit for me at this stage in life. And what I love about Feel Free is it encourages alertness and awakeness and also gives me a really nice euphoric feeling without any deleterious consequences. So no come down, no hangover. Now when I'm about to go out and friends are drinking, I put a couple of feel frees in my pocket and it has really been a game changer for me uh, in terms of uh, my overall feeling and staying consistent to my commitment around not drinking. Uh, if it's something you're intrigued by, it's a combination of, of four parts kava, one part kratom. Uh, plants that have been used for thousands of years, um, and it's incredibly potent. Uh, definitely recommend you guys check it out. If you're interested, uh, check it out online uh, at botanictonics.com. And if you put in peakmind40 at checkout, again, that's peakmind40 at checkout, you actually get 40% off your order. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce Charles Eisenstein. All right, I'm here with Charles Eisenstein. Charles, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, Michael, good to be here with you as well. I, um, I've been uh, a reader of yours for some time and uh, had the pleasure uh, in anticipation of the show to go deeper into, into your writings. And one of the things I love is I think uh, you cover the macro and the micro uh, with quite some beauty. And you talk about this, this notion of, you know, this, this new and ancient story. And there's a quote that you wrote actually in one of your earlier works, Sacred Economics, that, I, that I'd love to start with because I think it, it was a beautiful kicking off point. And you said, ultimately, work on self is inseparable from work in the world. Each mirrors the other. Each is a vehicle for the other. When we change ourselves, our values and actions change as well. When we do work in the world, internal issues arise that we must face or be rendered ineffective. I'd love if you could just start with talking about that notion of how the 
work in the world, the work um, that we do as we move through this, this beautiful thing called life, uh, how it aligns with the, the deep work we can do internally so as to be more effective as, um, as vessels um, or change agents in the world. And, and, the, and the, the preface would be, my background was actually as an activist in starting something called Global Citizen, which was a platform to, um, to alleviate extreme poverty or to work towards uh, diminishing the, you know, the, the, the causation of one point, you know, at the time, 1.125 billion people on the planet living on $1.25 or its equivalent. And while I found the work to be profound and proud of what we achieved, what I realized is any change that we make uh, in the world has to have a commensurate rise within. In other words, I think we have to have that, that inner work correspond to the work um, out in the world and, and the two are inextricably linked. And I love that you talk about those two, two things in such um, profound detail. So can you share a little bit more about your perspective on the inner work as it pertains to the work in the world? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to look at it. Um, what's coming to me right now is that uh, the that on the soul level, we've created our lives as um, means to develop, uh, to develop ourselves, to develop our souls, to develop consciousness. And so the the develop that development cannot happen by trying to separate ourselves from the curriculum that we've arranged for this express purpose. So, so it's, it's for me, like a lot of my development has been about embracing life and um, affirming my place here and confronting feelings of alienation and um, apartness that, you know, in some, some, some lineages might be considered uh, a spiritual orientation. But for me, like that, um, it's, it's, for me, it's been a pitfall. And in fact, the very word spiritual encodes a pitfall as well by delineating reality into two parts, uh, one of which is material and lesser and the other is spiritual and therefore more sacred. Like, and that division itself is one of the things that we're confronting now in the development of the soul. And the way that we confront that is by, is through the, what you might call the outer work of bringing sacredness to human affairs, to material relationships. So it's not to like escape the world and enter the spiritual sacred realm, but it's to uh, manifest the spiritual and sacred realm in the reality that we are in right now. It makes a ton of sense to me. To me, as you were speaking, it evokes almost the 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 archetype of the bodhisattva um, mm -hmm. and that notion. I lived in Sri Lanka for two years, and and the the prevailing uh, view is that a, a monk. Uh, kind of renounces the world to to go off alone into a cave in in the pursuit of enlightenment as an individual pursuit, but the village dwelling monastic, which is I think aligned to this this notion of the bodhisattva, is actually going deep into the the dukkha, you know, the suffering that is the world around us, and fostering the 
the assuaging of suffering of all other sentient beings and doing that mm -hmm. in the messiness of, of the world. And as we look around us, we are, <laughs> I think we are, we are surrounded by dukkha, right? We're surrounded yeah. by suffering and, and, and disconnection. And I think one of the things that I loved about, I think your, your voice in this pan, quote unquote pandemic that we just moved through is that calling to, which, which has been a, a persistent theme, a calling to reconnect, a calling to connection in, in, I think, what is the greater pandemic, which is our disconnection from ourselves and from each other. Yeah. So I, I don't want to like be saying that some people are doing it wrong, you know, mm -hmm. that the monks who go out and meditate in monasteries and caves are doing it wrong. I think that there's like, that's what they've set up for themselves. You know, there is certain work that needs to be done in seclusion. And there's a certain phase of your life where you might be more oriented toward that. Uh, and then there's other phases that require you to be in the mess, in, in the thick of things. And some people are destined in this lifetime to do one or the other, but most of us actually go through cycles. Uh, and a lot of cultures would recognize this. There would be, it would be accepted maybe for you to go on a walkabout or to go to the monastery for a year or for a week even, um, if that was what your soul was calling for. There was, there was room culturally and socially for that, which we don't really have in our society. So if you're going through a phase that involves something that doesn't make you economically productive, then you know it um, can, be, can be pretty hard to, to listen to that voice. Yeah, I, I, I really resonate with that. I, I think the, the lack of, of authentic processes of individuation uh, are, are one of the great, I think one of the great errors, uh, perhaps error is too strong a word, but one of the things that I think is, is really hindering our, our evolution. When you mentioned walkabout, uh, I had the great honor actually of, of doing men's business with an Aboriginal elder, actually mm -hmm. the namesake from which is Uluru, which is considered the most sacred place in, in Australia. And it was, a, if you'll indulge me, it was a really beautiful experience because I, I didn't, and I didn't know it was coming. Um, and it was when I was building Global Citizen and got called out to, to direct a film of youth from Sydney um, coming together with youth from Uluru. And as you know, the, the history of, of the Aboriginal relations as is the case with many of our Indigenous populations, unfortunately falls far from uh, respectful. Um, and so it was, there was a healing that was intended behind the experience. And what I didn't anticipate in going there uh, from the point of view of a director, if you will, was being invited in. And the elder actually took me out and he said, we're going to go on men's business. And I didn't really know what that meant, but he, he picked me up and I got in the back of this, this, this kind of beat up pickup truck and there were these kangaroo tails and and the barrel of a of a gun, not even not even the the the, the end of it, but just the the trigger and a, and a rifle, and we started barreling down uh, this it said Aboriginal only this tract of red land, and the first instance I knew that we were into something special was we're going about seventy kilometers an hour and about fifty miles per hour, and red dust is kicking up everywhere, and he stops and he says, "Come here." And he gets out and he, and he picks up, I don't know if you've ever seen a thorny devil, but they're these very beautiful lizards. Uh, but I couldn't, if there was a, a, a thorny devil right in front of me right here, right now, I couldn't see it because it was totally camouflaged in, in, in the sand. Yet this man was so attuned to the landscape 
that he was able to sort of detect its presence um, as we were as we were moving through time and space. And that evening, he shared with me the notion of the entire country being mapped in story, and that there are still Aboriginals today that are uncontacted, and that for the first time, as he as he spoke around the campfire, I experienced story not as a recounting of events, but as an invocation. Literally, as the man spoke, the world moved around him, and uh, I, I share that because. It was just a tiny, tiny glimpse. Of course, it wasn't a, an authentic sort of process of individuation, but you think how could someone go off and, on a walkabout through the desert of that country? I wouldn't survive two days, you know? And they, they can go out for a year and survive and in that process become something new or be shepherded into a different stage or phase of life through, through those elders. And I, I really yearn for that as a, as a man, you know, um, when I reached out to you, I, I think I, I shared that my father uh, recently passed. And part of the reason I had such a deep connection with him was he actually took me through a process of individuation. And I, I and he, in that process, there was 150 men there. He was the only father that had shown up to shepherd his son through. And I know that you have, you know, four sons. It was such a meaningful experience for me that it forged a bond that, that transcended this life. Mm -hmm. And so I just share that to sort of lay the grounds of saying I, I, I deeply yearn for those processes of individuation. And I think as a culture, we're, we're sorely devoid of them. And I, I think what we just experienced in a way could have been a collective wake up call in, in a way. It could have been a rite of passage into a, a, new, a new version of self and a new version of the collective. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like that has occurred, but, but I, I deeply yearn for what you share as, as this sort of new story that, that is one rooted in, in interbeing. And I, and I feel like these processes of individuation were some of the ancient technologies that could help us get there. Yeah, so beautiful story. Thank you for that. Um, it offers a window into an entirely different way of understanding the world and understanding ourselves. Mm. And along with that, an entirely different set of technology in a broad sense, which is the um, means by which we engage the world, uh, a set of skills, a set of practices, uh, a logos of crafts. That's what the word technology really means. And, the, and we think, you know, in the West, um, in the modernized world, that we are at the pinnacle of technological development. But actually what's happened is that we have deeply inhabited a state of being that corresponds to a certain kind of technology or a certain mode of technology that we have developed to a very high degree while neglecting other ways of being, other states of consciousness, and along with them, other possibilities in other creative possibilities, other possibilities in the way that we shape the material world and participate in the material world. So one of these you pointed to is the technology of story, which is based on a very different understanding of what the world is. And it says basically, stories are not something that is just about the world. They're not a set of meanings that we make and a set of interpretations, but they are the warp and woof of reality they weave the world. Um, this world is made of stories. 
which doesn't mean that we humans make the world, but we, because we're not the only storytellers here, but when we are aware of the power of story, which is one dimension of the power of word, which also uh, leads back to various wisdom traditions that understood that the world was, the world is an emanation of a sound. Um, Hinduism has this idea, Om. Uh, Christianity in the beginning was the word. Um, Taoism, you know, the Tao actually means to speak. Uh, it's not just a way. Uh, so, so anyway, so this this generative power of story um, that is not the sole province of human beings, but but enables levels of creativity that do not depend on our ability to dominate, our ability to exercise force on the world uh, through making lots of miniature explosions called an internal combustion engine, for example, and expanding little packets of gas to push things. Okay, like that is what most of our technology is based on. Yeah. Uh, pushing things around, uh, gases, electrons, you know, masses and so forth, uh, which is necessary when you are oblivious to the way that narrative and myth and story interweave into the process of change. So when you have that awareness and the Aboriginal cultures of Australia especially had that awareness, but we're certainly not alone um, among the indigenous, um, but also our own inner traditions too. Like this is not something that, that you know, the white man never discovered, okay? But you have to look. Uh, but when, when we immerse ourselves in that worldview, then all kinds of possibilities that might be called miraculous arise. And we also change our orientation from a posture of domination to a posture of participation. Because as I said, we're not actually the originators of our stories, but we are the tellers of stories and we are the discoverers of stories. And, and we are the receivers of stories. Stories are given to us in many forms. One would be the story that you can tell about your life. Like that is, you, you have your experiences, you make your choices, and as a result, you are given a story. And sometimes it is a story that is not to be told. Sometimes it is to be told. And then you can also receive stories um, through, uh, you know, the creative process, uh, where if you really tune in, you have a sense of this is part of the story, but that's not part of the story. Like the story has a beingness outside of yourself, very similar to what Michelangelo said, like his job was, it was to uncover the statue that's already inside the block. Yes. So how does he begin? He looks at the block. He meditates on the block until he sees what it wants to be. So yes. that is also a technology of the storyteller where we are uncovering and thereby co-creating the reality that corresponds to that story. And there are maybe many stories that offer themselves. We have a choice which story we subscribe to. So you mentioned one of them, that I work with is the story of interbeing, which tells us that who we are is not a separate self, but a, 
a relational being. And that, so through the um, pandemic, uh, which I've been calling now pandemania, mm -hmm. um, we were offered um, an opportunity to, for one thing, really see clearly the story that we had been in. Because it was a bit murky. Uh, the, the last two or three years have made very plain just how pervasive the fear is, the death phobia, the mentality of control, the idea that our ascendance, our salvation will come through more and more minutely controlling everything, our bodies, the microbial world, the movements of human beings, the speech of human beings, this was like every, everything was justified in order to control a virus. And, and this is, my point here is that this is not a new idea, that, that progress equals increased ability to control the world. So we're being shown, we were, we were shown that, and therefore asked, do you want that? And also shown what we sacrifice in order to have that. Yes. We, which was, you know, hugs, handshakes, singing together, civil liberties, gathering, seeing each other's faces, um, breathing together. So that was the choice. And I don't, like, I'm actually not, you know, I don't think that, um, I think that this choice is still available to us. We're still in the process of the initiatory ordeal that COVID has occasioned. I think that initiatory um, ordeal, if you will, to stay on theme is something profound because as we talked about earlier a little bit at the rites of passage or the hero's journey, you know, the archetype is there's always a descendence before the ultimate transcendence. And one could argue that we went through this collective descent together. Uh, I think, you know, what could not be denied. And, and, and as you talk about inter interbeing, it reminds me, I don't know if you've read the Hawaiian Buddhist text, the jewel net of Indra, but it basically talks about this notion of interbeing, which is, I think the it's, it's, it's impossible really to deny. And when, when one person's breath on one side of the world, taking all the politics, you know, away, when, when one person's breath on one side of the world can impact the life of literally every other person on the planet, we cannot deny our, our inherent interdependence, right? The fallacy of, of, individuality that, that a lot of us kind of premise our life around, I think is, is shown to be, at least in my view, kind of a false myth. And it really, I think, provides us with an opportunity to delve deeper into that notion of what story do we want to, to live into? And, you know, that notion of, that, that notion of control from a deeply personal point of view, you know, I had a, a I was jumped by a gang when I was uh, very young. It was my first experience abroad. And I developed an obsessive compulsive personality, which was basically a desire for control in a very uncertain world, right? My, my way of dealing with the inherent anxiety of fear of other people and fear of travel, which are now my two probably favorite things in the world, was I developed a neuroses, right? And so sort of commensurate with a lot of what happened in the, in the sort of pandemic, I tried to control everything. You know, every time I would leave the house, I would check the doorknob or make sure the stove is off, all of these kind of neurotic behaviors to sort of bring a, a false sense of control and security in this inherently insecure world. And what was the, 
you know, what was the doctor's protocol? Well, take, take these drugs and, you know, you'll deal with that for the rest of your life. Well, instead I did the opposite. I, I sort of said, well, if, if my, if my challenge is, 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 is fear, well, how have other cultures handled this, you know, and other cultures had a different narrative. They had a different story they lived out of, you know, when someone experienced anxiety, the way they would assuage that is through ritual. They had sort of a, a socio-cultural context in which one could be held. And I wound up going as far away from my comfort zone as possible to a small island nation on the other side of the world, Sri Lanka, which at the time was in a in civil war. And without make, you know, making this a long story, wound up studying with a traditional healer in a cultural tradition where there was no word for privacy and there was no word for possession. So when one person fell out of balance, it was the role of everyone in the collective, everyone in the village to bring them back into balance. When, so, so, what, so what was seen as mental unwellness or neuroses was an opportunity to reconsecrate the notion of, of the collective as a singular entity. And they did this through, you know, a beautifully elaborate rite, which has been common in many indigenous traditions, sunset to sunrise, they ritually recreated their sort of shared cosmological worldview, you know, flower altars, the person was put in the center, dances, offerings, and suddenly they would kind of come back together. And I think over the course of these last two years, you know, we've had the opportunity to sort of assess our story and realize the ways I think that we've fallen into, you know, this pandemic of loneliness and disconnection and the ways in which, you know, the story we've been living in doesn't serve us. And there, there's an opportunity to see the potentiality of that interbeing or interdependence and the blessing that it could afford, or to go into totalitarianism and control and trying to, you know, uh, utilize this as an opportunity to go, I think, deeper into what I would call more of a dark narrative. And I don't know how it's all going to pan out. Uh, you know, my, my hope, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of a, prag, a practical optimist, if you will. And I, I don't know if that's delusional. My hope is, as you said, we're still in this initiatory process and, and there may be uh, an awakening that, that, that comes, but it seems like there's a, a, a now a faster move to get back to life or business as usual, which unfortunately, um, it doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to have led to a, to a, a more uh, massive awakening of consciousness, if you will. Um, but I do think as we move away from this fear into a greater sense of connectivity and connective potentiality, I think there's a tremendous healing that is possible. And my hope is that in that tension, there's there's an awakening, right? You know, as I was preparing for this interview, I listened to your conversation with Brian Swim, who's a, a thinker that I love. And, and I did a permaculture workshop with him. And in a time which is kind of a dark night of the soul for me, he shared his story of, of how the dynamic tension in the universe actually is essential for that rebirthing process, right? The way that the earth is positioned in the solar system is within a unique band of gravitational pull that has allowed life as we know it to flourish, right? That in a microcosmic level, sort of the hawk and the rabbit have each evolved to be what they are in terms of their, you know, their traits because of sort of the dynamic tension of that predator-prey relationship. And while it's not totally analogous to, to what we're talking about, I, I, I do wonder to what degree as we go through these more intense awakening opportunities, these more intense sort of existentially, you know, challenging events, 
can they foment a, a rebirth or an awakening in consciousness, or is it is it just a, another opportunity to delve deeper into, you know, this this individuality, this control, this sort of neuroses that I think is is prevalent in our culture. So we had that in the I mean the the pandemic itself was mostly about that. We have decades of growing insecurity, growing anxiety, growing alienation, disaffection. Um, chronic disease, like people are getting less and less healthy, less and less happy for a couple generations. That's a what real pandemic. About it? Yeah, that's the real pandemic. And we don't know what to do about that. And that, that unknowing is so uncomfortable that when a virus comes along, we welcome that. The authorities as well as the population, because here's something that we can, we can control. And the, the suggestion unconsciously is if we can only control this, we will be restored to health and happiness. Mm. Well, okay, that, that's a mind form that replicates itself uh, sometimes in the dissident community, but they replace the COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus with the virus of the pedophilia elite or some other bogeyman that also suggests that if you can only control this thing, then you know democracy will be restored and virtue will be restored and morality will be restored. So it's the same basic mindset. And, and that's okay, like because what happens is um, eventually that one isn't gonna work either. And you'll be put back into uncertainty. And at some point you're, you just release yourself into that. And you go through the dark night of the soul and you really let go because because these replacement narratives are just this old narrative in a disguised form. And, and so their failure, maybe it takes a few failures, that is what really creates the emptiness. The, the, when, you, when you really take in your lack of knowledge, mm. that is a vacuum that if you maintain it long enough, uh, something new will come. It's the, the this sort of false promise that we buy into, right? Like it, 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 it speaks to, I think, this notion of this enemy, like the, the singular enemy, which distracts us. I think it's a, it's a common way in which the old stories uh, that were perhaps more holistic or, or more encompassing are now the dominant story is now this kind of common enemy that's very singular that distracts us from from the whole yeah. right uh you know climate change is way more of an existential threat or obesity and uh you know I I immunological like you know heart disease cardiac disease are killing way more people for example than than the pandemic and they're huge uh issues but if we focus just on this one thing then it distracts us from this larger story and the and the liminal space the uncertainty of of the vastness of that and, and the actual relinquishing to some degree of control, right? The, the relinquishing of, of feeling that you're an effective agent in that kind of very linear um, oriented sort of battle. And I think one of the great, you know, I think fallacies that were sold is this, if only we have this, if only we have X, then Y will happen, right? Like mm -hmm. both in terms of, uh, you know, sort of, I think this the sort of pandemic consciousness that you're talking about but also in terms of the false promise of you know if only if i have this house then i'll be happy or if only i have this partnership then i'll be happy and it keeps us forever more from the actual um 
process of being content in our beingness now and the and the and the and I think the glory that 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 rests in that to some degree inherent uncertainty. I feel like it's it's, a, it's also though counter to the prevailing narrative as a doer. And I think you talk about this sort of surrendering the doing. I often feel called to feel like I need to do something. You know, it's that that impulse. But sometimes the best thing to do is 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 in the beingness and 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 actually being comfortable in that uncertainty and and if you will being being in the listening. You know, and and really from that place, it's a, a short st story I'll share as well. I had a beautiful opportunity to sit with a, a Diné elder um, by the name of Jerry. And it was in a sweat lodge, which is a traditional technology for rebirth, right? You step into the symbolic womb and into the heat. And in the, the heat, we find, you know, we, you move through four rounds. And in those four rounds, you, you move through sort of this, this cosmological orientation around the directions and, and the process of, of life and death and, and rebirth. And what I found so powerful about that experience was, you know, I, so many Western teachers have their sort of 10 point plan, you know, for, for 1099, I'll give you the 10 stage process to, you know, solve all your problems. And in sitting in this sweat with this roadman, Jerry, he was so, he, he stepped into such a simplicity and such a, a deeply held, he, he, you could tell he was holding the space for all of us, but his way of being was so simple. And when he spoke to the fire, he, he welcomed in the grandfathers, you know, the stones. And, you know, there's a Comanche saying that, that with the fire, people get transfixed by the flames because the flames are seductive. But the power, the power is in the stones because the stones are what keep the fire burning. And with Jerry, you could tell that he was listening to each person, not just the words they shared, but the words behind the words and their way of being, their body language. And he didn't share any prescription, any solution, any sort of uh, vaccine, if you will, of, of you know, solutions. He just shared a story. But in that story, everyone could warm themselves by the fire. It was a story in which everyone could find sort of their own insights in sort of the challenges that they were looking for. And I wonder, are there, are there fires, to use that as a sort of symbol, are there, are there, are there fires now where we can come to warm ourselves have you found amidst this you know you've painted i think a really beautiful picture of i think the challenges we find ourselves in but are there ways in which you know you've talked about how you you both believe in this new and ancient story but also are still you know shaking yourself from the story that is our prevailing narrative are there ways in which you have found count council fires for lack of a better term that 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 those listening, myself, yourself, that you you find are particularly poignant examples of a, of a, perhaps a different story that people can warn themselves by. I'm not going to tell you where to go to find one. Mm. It's a lot more important to because by the time that you get to it, it will no longer be what I experienced it as. Mm. So it's much more important to be able to to to, to learn to recognize that council fire. And to prepare yourself, to prepare yourself to recognize it and to prepare yourself to be warmed by it, mm. to, to enter the circle. What does that preparation look like? Allowing these values to have their full impact, 
to do that, and this will also take you to the campfire, to the fire circle, you have to fully appreciate the and, and be present to the sacredness and preciousness of, well, each moment, but really I wanted to say our loved ones, our interactions with each other, like with, with, with each human being and with all living beings and, and of every moment and every experience. Because when we're oblivious to those things, it's like, then, then, then we don't really know how precious they are. A lot of people have this experience when they're um, with a dying loved one. And it's like, oh, I never appreciated them while they were here. If only I could have one more conversation, if only I was more present uh, when I was just so wrapped up in my own thing, you know, if only I had taken the time to, to be with this person when I had the chance. That realization points us, like that regret. Regret is a very, very powerful medicine because it realigns us with what's precious and asks us to incorporate the truth of the preciousness going forward. And so as we do that, then we make better decisions and we are more attuned intuitively, more tuned, more oriented toward situations that um, contribute to the preciousness. To like we, we're, we're, we're more oriented to, to the sacred when we receive with gratitude experiences that are sacred. So I, got, I guess what I'm saying is like there's, there's um, a, a kind of grace that puts you at that fire circle at the right moment of your life when you are ready for that, when you have done enough letting go, when you have felt enough gratitude, when you have felt enough regret, when you have taken a new step into being fully alive, then these opportunities come. So it's not so much about here's where to find them. Yeah, so that's a very, very long answer, but um, thank you for indulging it. No, thank you for, for sharing. I guess the, the piece that I, that I would love to hear is the heart-oriented piece around maybe your personal experience, you know, because you had shared about personal loss and also kind of preciousness. And I absolutely agree with you in a way it comes to you, right? I think we're oftentimes, uh, we get lost in trying to, in the doing this and then and, and trying to find it and, and, and thinking it has to be looked this in this prescriptive way. But the, the medicine unfolds before us if we choose to see it that way. And I, I think it's powerful what you shared in regards to, in regards to regrets and actually regrets being clarified. You know, the number one regret of the dying, they say, is that they didn't take a stab at living their life in accordance with their own virtues and values, you know? And I think that, like you said, that death can be a profound impetus for living. And unfortunately, culturally, we don't have a very good relationship with death. We kind of push it in the corner as we do our elderly, which I think is a real tragedy. Um, but, but I think that notion of using death as an impetus for living, right? The memento mori, but actually like consciously like utilizing that because that's, 
that's kind of if we will, if we zoom back out, like that was the existential threat we faced, right? This notion of impending death or uncertain death. And it showed us how distant our culture is from actually authentically contending with it or how removed we are from it. How personally, because a lot of this is intellectual, I guess what's coming up for me, and I don't know if this is a tangible question that really makes sense is, you know, I know that you have obviously this profound, these profound insights. And what I love is that they go from the deepest micro of viruses and bacteria to the greatest macro of the cosmos and how it works. But what's alive for me now is, is how does one navigate the uncertainty of this world with the heart? And I, I don't mean that as a prescription that you're sharing this, like, you know, for everyone, that, but how do you personally move through the world knowing what you know and, and keep your heart open? What's beyond the intellect? Like what, how, what ways in which you navigate through all of what you've shared, which underpinning, which at least in my listening, encourages some despair, some anger, some rage. Uh, yeah, well. Um, how, how do you keep your heart open and alive to the possibilities of the moment and, and to the interbeingness, that story you're committing to birthing amidst the tensions that are that are beset upon you yeah. and us. I mean, I'm having trouble answering it because I don't think I'm the one who keeps my heart open. Mm. I'm uh, my heart is opened by other people mm. when I experience their love and experience their generosity and their kindness and their courage, mm. and that co-resonates with something in me, and it 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 opens it opens yeah. me. And when that happens, I feel very grateful. Mm. And perhaps, perhaps that gratitude, you know, is a form of presence. Gratitude is to really feel that you've received a gift, to really acknowledge, to know that you've received a gift. That's gratitude. But, you know, I would even say for me often, even gratitude comes as a gift. It's not like I tried to feel grateful. It's that my defenses were overwhelmed and wow, I'm in gratitude. So yeah, for me, it's not, I really can't, I can't say that, that I have a whole lot of agency in opening my heart or keeping my heart open. But when my heart is open, even a little bit, then I'm able to be an agent of other people opening their hearts. And then maybe they return the favor at some point. So I guess what I want to say is that, that what you're asking is really it's a community function. Mm -hmm. That any one of us on our own, and it doesn't have to be a human being that opens the heart. Yeah, it could be some other spirit. But um, yeah, it's not an individual endeavor. Definitely not. Yeah, it, it evokes for me a different sense of possibility. There's a, there's a quote I'd actually like to, to share with you that, I, that was evoked when I was doing a bit of research. And it's one you probably know, um, but I'd love to read it to you and, and see, what, mm -hmm. see what comes. Will you teach your children what we have taught our children, that the earth is our mother? What befalls the earth befalls all sons of the earth. This we know. The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. 
all things are connected like the blood that unites us all. Man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. One thing we know, our God is also your God. The earth is precious to him. And to harm the earth is to heap content on its creator. Chief Seattle. Right. Yeah. I'd, I'd love your, your perspective on, on those words as it relates to your notion of, of interbeing. What we do to the earth, we do to ourselves. That's the key message there. Mm. Um, but what, what we do to ourselves is not always so easy to discern. Um, it, it, what we put out there, when it comes back to us, it takes a different form. And so what I mean by that, like in environmental discourse, there's a lot of talk of we aren't going, we're going to go extinct if we keep damaging the earth. And it seems rational, right? Like if we destroy the ecological basis of life, then we're going to die too, because we're part of life. But in fact, so for one thing, we've been killing life on earth and, and destroying the living fabric of this planet for a long time. The uh, ecologist uh, naturalist J.B. McKinnon speaks of a 10% world that we live in right now. Pretty much we've wiped out 90% of the, whether it's the virgin forests, you know, the wetlands, the whales, the elephants, you know, um, the, the birds. Uh, you, you, if you read 17th century, 18th century accounts of explorers, like when James Cook discovered, quote unquote, New Zealand, the noise of the birds, even when they were anchored a quarter mile offshore was deafening. Wow. Like that that you know like like you could go fishing by simply like putting a bare hook in the water and you'd catch a fish instantly yeah like, like this world was just so alive so if we were going to die as a result of extinguishing other life it would have happened already mm. but we don't have a 10 percent human world in terms of our numbers we have a 10x human world in time in terms of our numbers so the damage that we are doing to ourselves is not necessarily of the same kind as the damage we're doing to the world. But it, what Chief Seattle is saying is absolutely true on a more subtle level, which is when we kill the rest of life, when we create conditions that life cannot thrive, something in us dies. And the uh, obsession with consumption, with money, with control, all of these things are a reflection of our poverty, of, of our not being fully alive. When we meet somebody who's more fully alive, like maybe that Aboriginal guy, you know, who's so alive that he can discern a camouflaged lizard as he's driving 70 kilometers an hour, like then it speaks to you of a possibility. It awakens a possibility. I wanna be that alive too. Yes. And to become that alive, you have to honor life. How could it be otherwise? If you honor life, then 
it comes back to you and you become more alive. So we could continue as a species to destroy the planet. And it will not necessarily mean that we go extinct, but it will mean that our, we'll become more and more like zombies. We'll become more and more empty. We'll become more and more dead. Life will become more and more of a burden. We'll need more and more chemical stimulation to even function. And that path has no end point. Mm. We can go deeper and deeper and deeper into hell if we so choose. The turnaround comes when we begin to honor life. Mm. And then we become more alive. Can you talk about that? Because this, I feel like, is the crux of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Like, I'd love to, to, to taste that. Like, it feels like that is the harmonic, that is the connective potential, that is the awakening that happens, like you said, with that Aboriginal elder. You know, the Howard Thurman quote, don't ask what the world needs, ask what make you come alive, because what the world needs is for people to come alive. And I feel like that notion of what brings about your vitality is a key antidote yeah. to, what, to, to what ills us. And what brings about your vitality is not unrelated to what the world needs. No, But I you agree. don't do it because the world needs that. Yes. So, you know, I'm, I'm building like a little kind of outdoor shrine right now in our backyard yeah. for my wife to do her ceremonies and stuff. Um, and it's not that I'm building it because I see a need for it. It's that I take in all of the needs that are out there and all of the potentialities and the pain and the possibility. I take that in, I digest it. And that digestion process gives birth in me an impulse and an attraction to something and a feeling of excitement and aliveness at the thought of doing that. So then I follow that. It may be that my rational mind can easily justify that choice. Like maybe I take in, you know, all of the information about tree death in New England and, you know, biodiversity loss and so forth. And that births in me a desire to go plant trees. But it might birth something, and I can I can justify that, right? I can explain that, but it might birth in me a desire to, you know, work at an animal shelter. Uh, or uh, to, uh, you know, teach preschool or um, to, you know, work with psychedelics or to do something that I cannot directly link to that need. But see, I, you, see when, when I take it all in, I become a whole person. And part of taking it all in uh, for me has been like a recognition of the importance of like an, an, an attraction to ceremony and um, plants and, and, and beauty, like, and shrines. And like, this is just something that's newly emerging in me, but um, other cultures, um, you know, they, they understood the importance of doing things beautifully. The spirits like it. Yes. When even if you like 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 a Tibetan sand mandala, like they spend all day huge effort into making this beautiful thing. 
Or like in South America, the despacho, you know, they spend like all this time making this temporary shrine that is then burned or it's then destroyed. And, and like the rational mind is like, well, what good does that do? They could have spent that time uh, working on a permaculture garden and they could have spent that time, you know, sequestering carbon or they could have spent that time doing something actually useful instead of creating something beautiful that is then destroyed. Like the, the Western mind does not understand. But other cultures understood that, that any act of beauty feeds the spirits. Yes. It's a contribution. It's a sacrifice, actually. Yes. It's like, an offering. Yeah. And there's no control over how it's going to come back to you. This, I love that you're, it, it reminds me, the first thing that was evoked was the notion of the samurai. I think in the Western culture, we, we romanticize a samurai as this sort of warrior, which of course they were, but but more also, they were, they were about the commitment to being fully present and being in the beauty of the moment, right? Like if I'm doing calligraphy, I'm fully present to the stroke of that, of that brush. If I'm planting my garden, I'm fully present because this act is in service, right? That, that traditional life of the samurai was actually a, an absolute commitment to service to something higher than yourself, right? Like oftentimes right. to a master, but in the context of, of spirit and, and the indigenous, I feel like they were so tapped into this notion because life was an offering. And each day, each moment was an opportunity to lead with that spirit of offering. And the virtue and value of that exists beyond its, yeah. it, 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 its inherent value in and itself. Right. And so that's one way I look at that is it's the spirit of the gift. Mm where everything you do, you understand as a gift to the world. And it also must be in balance with receiving. So it's not like you're always like in this samurai uh, focus, you know, of I'm going to do everything I do the best I possibly can. There's also times of absolute receptivity, absolute joy, absolute yes. pleasure, absolute reception. Yes. Those have to be in balance. And we kind of have like a watered down version of each one mm. like we don't like our our many of our pleasures are actually substitutes for for real pleasure just as a lot of our work is like this half-hearted uh uh routine you know that we're bribed or coerced into performing but it's not like and, and I'm, I'm not speaking for everybody here but a lot of people if they look inside, we'll have the feeling like this isn't really what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Right. But, you know, and I'm not judging people for that. Like, um, we are in a hard situation, actually. And anyway, I could talk more about that process, but, but I'll just say it is powerful just to acknowledge the yearning to do, to use your gifts, your talents, your abilities in as beautiful a way as possible. Mm. To do things that are beautiful in their own right, beyond any practical necessity. Like to do it really, really well. Yes. Know that I, this is the best I could have done. Like we often don't have time for that and you won't get paid for that. Yeah. And, and like, there's not a lot of support, but in a way it's always, that's always been true. Like every time that you do something as, best you can as beautifully as you can you're always making a new claim on reality you're and and you're 
always unfolding a new dimension of yourself because you're, you're moving beyond the ordinary and the established. You're, you're moving in a way from this, the mundane into the sacred. If right. in so far as like what, what, what reminds me of is the beauty of a song, right? Like music has such a powerful, potent medicine when, when, when song, you mentioned ceremony. I don't, I don't necessarily know that you meant in the context of a medicine ceremony, but you can truly tell the difference in a medicine ceremony between someone who's singing because they want you to see them right. and someone who's singing because they want to lift the collective, right. you know, and so yeah. much music, music has such a powerful potential, but on its on, on measure, if you were looking at it through the eyes of kind of our Western society, it's kind of a commercial enterprise. Oh, they sold X, Y, Z records, but actually music in itself, the song has such a powerful potential to unite when it's, when it's presented as an offering. Well, and the, the other thing about music, um, a song is more powerful when it's actually being sung to you yes rather than just being performed yes because it's it's the music then becomes a relationship um, yes and it becomes a real offering so that's why recorded music for me is unsatisfying mm. it's like um it's like eating like sugar you know with no nourishment underneath it yeah it's it, it maybe takes the edge off the craving but it leaves me even hungrier Yes. And, and this is an example of what I was talking about, like the, the um, substitute pleasures, you know, like the half aliveness, like the things that we have in such super abundance don't actually meet us. They don't, even if we're open to receiving, like there's just not that much there when you listen to, you know, the recording of Hotel California uh, or whatever song it is. I was just listening to something today and at the end, they have the audience cheering, like everybody's, well, you know, like they're at a rock concert, you know, it's recorded live. And it's, it's actually the recorded music is lying to you. You're kind of supposed to pretend that you're there too. But in fact, you're not there. You're not in relation to musicians. They are not singing to you. You are not at a, a festival. You are not at a concert. You're sitting in the dentist's chair. That's actually where you are. <laughs> yep. And, and being distracted by this pretense, or maybe like, like, it's just like this constant, like this, this constant temptation and to, to be not present. Mm. That's when we're so inundated with entertainment and distractions, like you go to fill up your gas tank and there's an advertisement on the gas pump, like a video commercial plays like everywhere that, that is, all seeking to colonize the only territory that we really have that's truly our own, which is our attention. Mm. So this is, you know, and I, I don't wanna like sound negative about this. I'm simply um, naming where we are um, so that we can reclaim what is lost. It is a battle for attention. Uh, there's no question about it. And there's so many, if you think about signal and noise, there's so many, there's so much noise in the world. And, and, and the question I think is how do we find our signal? How do we find that resonant, that, that, and that, that's that song that, that truly resonates. Like one of the things I'm deeply curious about is what is this, 
what is the song that wants to emerge in the space between two people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how can we be in the listening around what that is? To me, that would revolutionize the notion of relationship, right? Instead of me approaching you and saying, oh, I think transactionally, this is what I want to happen. This is what I want to get out of this. It's rather a, how can I be in an offering to what wants to emerge in this space? A really good DJ will do that, actually. Like they can use recorded music as an instrument in itself and they'll read the audience, you know, and they'll know what to play next. And maybe they'll even add some things in, you know, and, um, and a a band can do that too. If they, they, they might depart from their playlist, if they're really in tune with the audience, that's what we're craving. Yeah. We're we're craving to be back in relationship and not just to be consumers. That's exactly right. Do you, do you, so in that notion of relationship, and, 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 a, and connection, you know, like a, a true connection, you know, we now have many more superficial connections, whatever social media connections, and obviously people are more lonely than they've ever been. We had this pandemic of loneliness. Um, but yet, and, and this is where, where it gets interesting, right? We had kind of bring it full circle. You know, we're, we're fighting for health and wellness, so to speak, or, or at least not dying, as we've talked about earlier. But a lot of the research is showing that the greatest corollary to our long-term health and happiness is the quality of our long-term relationships. That actually mm-hmm. has, it's the greatest causation of anything, you know, right. and, and yet we're becoming more distant. What I'm trying to get at is insight around connection and the connective possibility. What I'm trying to get at is, is how, do we, how do we become instruments for the song that is the more beautiful world we know? Our hearts know is possible. And I don't know if there's a cogent answer for that. I don't think there's a sound bite, but, but, but I, I think what people are deeply yearning for is that connection, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think that process that you evoked earlier, I felt more alive yeah. as you talked about it is, it yeah. is, is, is that medicine. Um, but I think, you know, not that there's a prescription, but I think people are yearning for that more than anything, you know? And, and I don't you know. You have to stop. Yeah. You have to stop gaslighting yourself. Okay. And stop or, you know, stop participating in the generalized gaslighting that holds connection to be not that important Mm. and puts other things above it. That's, you know, that's what happened in the pandemic. We did not really affirm how important it is to be together. And so we sacrificed that. Yeah. We we lost that. And ironically, in the name of health, sacrificed not only connectedness, but also sacrificed health. Because as, as we are learning, or I thought had learned, um, because we are not separate selves, but we are a nexus of relationship, that health can never come in isolation. You know, like a potted plant is never as healthy as a dandelion in a field that's in myriad relationships, you know, via the mycelia, via aromatic compounds, via the insects, you know, like that's health. And so after distancing, masking, locking down, like all of this separation, now we're experiencing like higher mortality than ever before. And, you know, I mean, maybe, okay, maybe vaccine adverse events is part of it, but I think that there's a lot more. Like, I think we're, we're, we're seeing in general, the 
paradox of control that it never achieves its object and always requires more and more and more of it. Hmm. And that's, that's when we have that realization and we really see that and we stop gaslighting ourselves and we say, no, that is important. Like hugs are important. Singing together is important. Dancing together is important. Fuck yes. Festivals are important. And we just acknowledge that mm-hmm. and hold that precious. Then, and, and, and then trust that the digestive process will enable us to make more courageous and wise decisions. Then everything changes. And any how-to I could give you would come from that anyway. Mm. So, and, and this acknowledgement of what's important and, and the, this um, cessation of gaslighting ourselves, like, again, like this happens in community. When I say these things, then it um, reinforces the part of you that also knows that this is true. Like, this is not a bad thing to, to be like, okay, I think I know this. I think this is true, but let me seek outside validation. Like, sometimes we think that it's a bad thing to seek outside validation for your inner truths, but it is actually um, a normal human impulse to recognize our own fallibility and to seek the validation of people that we respect. Mm. The problem is that when those who are in positions that invite respect have become corrupt, and 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 dishonest, then this natural impulse to look to others to validate goes awry and renders us vulnerable to manipulation. But like fundamentally, we can only stay sane together. And so I, I guess that's my hope is that my invocation of the sacredness of these things will um resonate with uh, the same truth that's within you. And if it doesn't, then, you know, okay, that's, that's, that's all right. Um, but I speak my truth and trust the results. It's a, it's a resonant song. I think you speak to authenticity. I think what we crave in addition to relatedness, I think relatedness is actually, there's so much, frankly, bullshit in the world, you know, <laughs> that I think we, we, we also yearn for, you know, a deep authenticity, you know, and, and, and well, when you, you can't really it, have relation without authenticity. Correct. When you yeah. sing your authentic song, it's not, everyone's going to resonate with that song. Right. But those who are meant to dance with you, you know, there's that, there's a beautiful African, very simple African proverb that I love, right. If you can walk, dance, if you can talk, sing, you know, and not everyone's going to maybe dance to your song. But when you are fully expressed in the singing of your song and it comes from that place of offering, I think those that are meant to dance with you will, will find their way to you. Um, and yeah, I just want to take a moment to thank you, Charles, because um, I really do appreciate the song that you live in the world. Uh, I think that it's clear to me, if I can take a moment just to acknowledge you, it's clear to me that you are deeply passionate about um, being a vessel in this life uh, for that space that can be a dance in the space between two people. And you are, you know, I, I love that you're also not a, not a monoculture. You know, I think so many, so much of our culture encourages us to be specialists in one particular thing. And I like that you're 
for lack of a better term, a renaissance man. And, and you're equally talk, passionate about talking about bacteria and viruses as you are around, you know, the cosmos as you are to, you know, some of the challenges of our time that we find ourselves in. And um, I think the diversity of, of those perspectives is really, is really valuable. And uh, I, I just appreciate you taking the time to, to talk, man. And, and also fi finding, I want to also acknowledge that, you know, I think for me, going from a place of, 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 of trying to find resonance in the intellect and then dropping into the heart, how, how much more valuable it is when we come from a place, we, we surrender into the listening and let what wants to emerge, emerge. Well, thank you, Michael. That's very kind. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you and, and, and your work? Um, well, I'd rather they don't show up at my house uh, unannounced. <laughs> yeah. They might want to see that ceremonial uh, space you've created for your wife, but, uh, but yeah, that's that's probably not on point. Yeah, uh, but you know, I write on Substack. Um, you can just if you Google my name, you'll find me. CharlesEisenstein.org. Yeah. yeah, Charles. Thank that's you. my website. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you for your time, Charles. Really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Michael. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Charles Eisenstein. I know that I did. Uh, please go check out his Substack, his website, uh, charleseisenstein.org. He's got incredible writings on there, and uh, he can go deep down the rabbit hole as I did. Um, if you did enjoy it, feel free to uh, send it off to a couple of friends uh, that you think would get a lot of value out of it. And uh, if you feel inspired, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening. It really helps us um, grow the show and the community as well as get incredible guests like Charles on. So thank you guys so much. Wishing you a beautiful day and uh, we'll see you next week.